So in the famous words of Jules, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, um, <laughs> Marion told you that we'd got to the end of Deuteronomy this morning. Well, it's not quite true. But one more, one more service on Deuteronomy. So we get to the end of the commandments this evening. We come to the final commandment so you can breathe a collective sigh of relief. Um, we have done it. We've got there. And so the final commandment comes from Deuteronomy 5.21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or his land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I don't think there's any coincidence that this is the final commandment in the list. It seems to me to underpin all the others. After all, why murder or steal or commit adultery, etc., except that you want something that you don't already have? The Jewish philosopher Philo, apparently, who lived around the time of Jesus, wrote about this at some length in his On the Ten Commandments, and I thought this was quite useful. So I'm going to quote a bit from Philo. For all the passions of the soul are formidable, exciting and agitating it contrary to nature, and not permitting it to remain in a healthy state. But of all such passions, the worst is desire. On which account, each of the other passions, coming in from without and attacking the soul from external points, appears to be involuntary, But this desire alone derives its origin from ourselves and is wholly voluntary. Is it not owing to this passion that relationships are broken asunder and change the goodwill which originates in nature into an and change the goodwill which originates in nature into an irreconcilable enmity? And are not great countries and populous kingdoms made desolate? by domestic seditions through such causes. And on our earth and sea, continually filled with novel and terrible calamities by naval battles and military expeditions for the same reason. For both among the Greeks and barbarians, the wars between one another and between their own different tribes, which have been so celebrated by tragedians, have all flowed from one source, namely desire of money or glory or pleasure. For it is on such subjects as these that the race of mankind goes mad. And the prophet Micah, I think, said something similar around 700 years before that. This is from Micah chapter 2. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. So I think we're starting to get a picture of the seriousness of covetousness. There are a number of examples of what God thinks about individuals who've coveted things or people. We can start with, uh, with Achan, I'm sure you know the story of Achan. We read about Achan in Joshua. When the Israelites were routed by the men of Ai, following their victory at Jericho, 
They couldn't understand what was going on. Joshua fell down before God. And the Lord said to Joshua, Stand up, what are you doing down in your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. And we know that Joshua was commanded to bring all the people before him and the tribe of family, the tribe and family of Achan was chosen. And Achan says when he's accused, he replies, it's true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. And as we know, it didn't end well for Achan. Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. And then all Israel stoned him. And after they'd stoned the rest, they burned them. And over Achan, they heaped up a huge pile of rocks, which remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. I figured that um, stoning him was probably enough. But not only did they stone him, <laughs> they burned them. And then they piled a huge pile of rocks on him. So it, and it gives us some kind of indication of how angry God was um, because Achan coveted and took um, the, the goods that they'd been told not to. And then there's Ahab and Naboth. Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard for a vegetable garden because it was closer to his palace and he didn't have to walk so far um, and he thought it'd be nicer. But Naboth refused him. So Abraham went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. That picture of Ahab sort of bashing his fists into his bed because Naboth won't give him his vineyard. Naboth acts like a, a spoilt child because he can't get what he wants. And so he lets his wife Jezebel deal with the situation. Make no comment on, on that because I want to eat when I get home. Uh, so she, made, she has false accusations made um, about Aunt Naboth and has him stoned so that Abraham, Ahab can have what he covets. God sends Elijah to see Ahab. And Ahab says to Elijah, So you've found me, my enemy. I have found you, Elijah answered, because you've sold yourself to do evils in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you've aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. Now in this case, Ahab repents and the punishment is delayed um, and meted out on his sons 
which strikes me as a little unfair and, and probably the basis for another sermon, um, which you can ask Tim about because I don't think that's one I can cover. And of course, then there's a the story of David and Bathsheba. And we all know the story of David and how um, David has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed um, when he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant whilst Uriah is away at war. God is angry with David and sends the prophet Nathan to speak to him. And Nathan says to David, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. It's interesting, I think, because it doesn't say that it doesn't start with you took the wife of Uriah Hittite to be your own. It starts with you despised me because David wanted something else over and above what God had given him. So it's the, the sin of coveting that comes before the sin of adultery. So I think we can conclude from all those different stories that God doesn't really think very much of covetousness. I was doing a bit of research and there appears to be some kind of debate going on as to whether coveting requires action or if it's just desire. Some commentators were trying to draw a distinction between coveting and craving. So going back to the, to the commandment, they picked the difference between you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, you shall not crave your neighbour's house or land. And there seems to be some kind of, tries to make some kind of justification for the difference between coveting and craving. And certainly we know that coveting is more than attraction, but in the same way that Jesus took the command not to murder to another level and warned that a man even looking at another, sorry, a man even looking at another woman lustfully is guilty of adultery. I think we conclude that being guilty of, um, you can be guilty of coveting without actually taking any kind of physical step to gain what it is that we desire. I think it's probably like the difference between I'd like and I want. It's when the attraction becomes something, um, something consuming, more than just a thought, but something that takes over our, our thoughts. Equally, some people seem to try to distinguish between the item that is being coveted. And I'm sure we can agree that the list of items we're told not to covet are representative and not exhaustive. After all, there's no command not to covet your neighbour's husband. Uh, but I can't see that, that ladies get out of it and, and men, you know, surely this is just uh, you know, a, an example rather than an exhaustive list. So it, it seems to me that the command to covet covers actively wanting pretty much anything that we don't have. So when we're very young, that might be another child's toy. We can see children fighting, aren't we, over their toys. As we get older, it might be another person's car or their house, their job, their pension plan, 
Maybe it's their health or their network of family support. I started off thinking that maybe coveting was a, was a young person's um, sin, if you like. But actually, I don't, think there's, um, I don't think there's any age at which we become immune to the temptation to want something that someone else has that seems better than what we have. In preparing the service, I, I came across an article by Don Wilton of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association who says, the propensity of sinful man is to desire anything and everything that he has not been given by God. I thought that was a pretty good summary of what coveting is all about. The propensity of sinful man is to desire anything and everything that has not been given by God. And it echoes what Paul writes in Galatians. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So ultimately, coveting is a form of idolatry. It consumes our thoughts and stops us seeing the good things that God has done for us. So really this last commandment takes us right back to where we started. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Coveting is just, a, is just a way of putting another god before our god. In writing to Colossians, Paul puts it this way. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, or covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And the writer to the Hebrews says, Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. But actually, in the King James... It says, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. So the command is clear, not to covet. It's not a command that um, went away with the Old Testament. It's one that continues to today. So what do we do about it? I think it's interesting as well because it has I wrote this in afterwards which is why I can't read my own writing but I, I think this has um, echoes of what we were looking at this morning um, let me just read what I've written here I can't actually read my own writing which is not very helpful is it all the point I'm trying to make um, it was, I think it was the point of um, you're saying keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said never will I leave you never will I forsake you and we read this morning didn't we the Lord himself goes before you and will be li- with you he will not leave you or forsake you 
So we know that we can rely on God's faithfulness. And Paul provides a key, I think, when writing to the Philippians. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I think that's a lot easier uh, said than done. And I suspect that practicing contentment is a lifetime's work. In the same article by uh, Don Wilton, Don Wilton of the BGA, um, he proposed an eight-step model, um, which I thought was helpful, but which I simplified slightly because, well, he was American and they tend to make things a lot longer than they need to be. So I've simplified it to a four-step model. First, confess. Two, take an inventory of your life before God. Three, refresh your vision based on an acceptance of the blessings God has given you. And four, strive to use whatever God has given you for the benefit of others. That again. First of all, confess. Confess um, our our desire of things that God has not given us. Secondly, take an inventory of your life, what God has given us before God. Thirdly, refresh your vision based on an acceptance of the blessings God has given you. And fourthly, strive to use whatever God has given us, given you for the benefit of others. So in short, be satisfied with who you are, be content with what God has given you and be grateful in all things for your Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We started our service by thinking about Jesus as being king and that his kingdom is not like an earthly kingdom. And if we really believe that, then it follows that he must know what he's doing and that he knows what's best for each one of us. It follows that we can rely entirely on him to provide all that we need. So rather than me trying to expound at length on this anymore, I thought it would be useful if we put some of that into practice. And so I'm going to lead us in a prayer of confession, and then we'll spend some time reflecting on what God has done for us. And finally, we'll commit ourselves again to serving others and him as we go out. So let's pray together. Father God, we know that you give us all that we need. Forgive us for being ungrateful for your blessings in our lives. Too often we allow things to take the place, to take your place in our hearts to take the place in our hearts that rightfully belongs to you. Forgive us, Lord. And using the words of David in Psalm 53, cleanse me with hyssop 
and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me.